Welcome to the Safe Haven Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda. The Safe Haven Podcast is a space for you to be real, raw, emotional, vulnerable, hilarious, and or completely carefree. This podcast offers a space for stories to be shared about the lights and darks, highs and lows of life, in a judgment-free zone. Join me and my powerful guests as we dive into a variety of conversations and topics. Listen from where you are, as you are. Think, laugh, and cry along with us, whether you're in your car, in your kitchen, chasing your kids, running your business, caregiving for someone you love, getting a mani-pedi, while you're in the hospital, a treatment center, sitting on the deck, on the dock, or out for a run. These weekly stories and messages will hit you right in the heart, fill up your cup, and recharge your spirits. Joining me today is my new friend, Claudine, in her space. Thank you so much for welcoming me into your space. I really appreciate it, Claudine. Welcome to the Safe Haven Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really really happy that this worked out. Just even the fact that we are living close enough that we can do this. So being in your space also makes it easier for me, so I appreciate you so much. I appreciate you. Ah. It's just amazing how we met and how we ended up here in such a short period of time. I know. It's so true. So yeah, here we are. Here we are. I would. You have a big story to share today. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And I would love it if we just gave some context into who you are, where you grew up, what your family dynamics were like. We'll kind of set the stage there for our listeners, okay? Okay. So I was born in the 60s in upstate New York. And when I was about seven, my mom and stepdad and older brother decided that we were going to move to Canada and we were going to live in a log cabin and live off the earth. Okay. (laughs) And that's what I thought Canada was going to be like, honestly. There's igloos and log cabins. (laughs) And um, that's not actually what it was like. We lived in our truck for a few months, and then we got a, a house and uh, started school, which was really weird for me because in Alberta, there's not a lot of people of color mm-hmm. or any other ethnicities besides just this, the people that live there. Like, it seems so weird to me to be walked into a room, a classroom in grade two, and be introduced, this is Claudine from New York, and look around and not see anybody that looked different than me. Mm-hmm. It was really weird. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was just odd to me. And I still didn't feel like I fit in. Right. And I remember, you know how the teacher makes you read a, a paragraph and then somebody else reads a paragraph and you kind of go around. And I hated that because everybody picked on me for the way I sounded. Oh, because, yeah, I didn't even, I wouldn't have even thought about that, really. But, yeah, you would have had an accent. Really, even having moved to BC, I can hear little accents even between East Coast, West Coast. Yeah. So I can imagine that just south of where I'm from, you know, in upstate New York, to go from there, out here, yeah, it would be To middle of nowhere, Alberta. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, I think that's when the bullying started. Like, I used to get bullied a lot Mm. because I was different. Right. And my parents were different. Yeah. And so bullying started early for you. Yeah. Grade two. Ugh. And I and I think we didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And um, I never had the nicest clothes. And sometimes I wore my brother's hand-me-downs. 
which was not always fun. I never had blue jeans till I could buy them myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I only had the one pair of runners like forever. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why I have a bit of a hoarding issue now because <laughs> when I want a new pair of shoes, I just go get another pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. I probably have like eight pairs of runners. And to be honest, I probably have about 100 pairs of jeans wow. that I never wear, but I just have to have. Yeah. Because I was denied them for so long. But then my parents started having more kids. And um, yeah, I you've guess got quite a big family. I have five brothers. Yeah. No sisters. No sisters. Yeah. So, but my brothers never had to wear my hand-me-downs. No. <laughs> I was just going to say, did it ever go the other way? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but my older brother used to steal my jeans. Because they looked so good on him, I guess. I'm not sure. Hey, that's a trend now I hear, you know, wearing the tighter, the tighter the jeans, the better they look. Well, back in the 80s. Yeah, that was the thing, right? (laughs) Like, yeah, I remember that, you know, laying down on the floor and using the coat hanger to get the zipper to go up. Right. Fun times. (laughs) Okay, so that's a pretty big move to make early in life. Can you tell us a little bit about the family dynamics? You know, what were your parents like? I thought because my real father was would spoil us. I remember having a visit with him before we moved to Canada. He would come and pick us up and take us to the corner store and say, you can buy anything you want. Mm-hmm. And we could just take any candy off the shelf and he would buy it for us. And I thought that's what my stepdad would be like. And I remember asking him, whispering in his ear in the car, if I could ask a secret and he goes sure and I said could I have a piece of gum and he said yes and I thought that meant that he was going to be the same kind of dad that I had or was used to and it that didn't seem to last very long um he was a very violent man he he drank uh he worked shift work and I don't think he ever really cared about me maybe it was because I was the only girl Mm -hmm. or maybe because I wasn't his um he had a a strange way of teaching me things and saying things to me when I was really young I remember I used to put on my mom's old prom dress and dance in front of the mirror at my grandma's house and I remember him because they were sitting in the kitchen watching me and I remember hearing him say sorry Somebody should really tell her to stop because she's never going to be any good at that. And I remember it like that's affected me for a really long time. Mm -hmm. I remember once he handed me an oil filter wrench, an oil filter, and said, go change the oil on the truck. And I was like, I don't know what to do. But I didn't dare ask him because I was afraid of what he would say or how he would react. And I would just get my older brother And I said, just tell me what to do. Like, I'll do it. I just don't know what to do. He told me once to go out and change the tire on the big crew cab truck. And you had to use a jack all to do that. Mm -hmm. And I was probably, I don't know, 75 pound weakling. And um, I remember trying to change the tire on the truck. But it wasn't flat. There was no reason for it. And I never really understood that. And I think his philosophy, and maybe he even said it to me, was... You really should learn how to do everything for yourself because you're never going to be smart enough. 
to get a really good job. You're never going to be pretty enough to get a really good husband. So you're just going to have to make it on your own. Okay, how old are you when you're getting these awful messages? About 9, 10, 11. It's so awful. It's it's not, doesn't regard, like, I'm blown away right now. But even to hear that from such a young age, no matter when you hear that, it sucks. But such a an impressionable age, I'm really sorry you had to go through that. Yeah. Because that would really root so many limiting beliefs in yourself. One of the things that some of the therapists that I've gone to see ask me, like, what is, what's, do you think is wrong with you? And I said, my biggest thing is that I've never felt good enough because mm-hmm. I was told I wasn't. And if you hear that enough, you believe it. Mm-hmm. And I, I have believed that for so long. And it's one of the hardest things to get over. And it, it's funny because I shared, I go to AA meetings and I shared to, with someone one day, I said, you know, like, I know it sounds stupid, but why, do, why don't we treat ourselves better? Mm-hmm. Like, why are we so hard on ourselves? I, I, I get every one of you, I, when you wake up in the morning, I want you to go in the bathroom and look in the mirror. And like, you're a miracle. You know, I'm actually kind of glad we have your dog with us right now because she's at least trying to lighten the, the mood here. If So for the listeners, if you can hear in the background, those are her nails. She's been dancing around here. Or if you can hear some groaning, she'd really like to play. And she's very cute. Hey, and she Minnie. doesn't like it if I get upset or have any. I know she can tell that weird we're talking tone about some voice, pretty heavy right? stuff. Yeah. yeah. Especially she... even during the pre-recording when we were starting to talk. She she knew. Yeah. She knew. Lay down, Minnie. Lay down. So when we dive back, you've been hearing these really awful negative messages from a very young age. You're entering puberty and you're starting to become a teenager, you know, and you're living in this place that maybe you don't feel good enough. You feel a little bit ostracized. Mm-hmm. Now, how did that start to influence your those developmental years? Well, I in the pre-interview, you asked me um, if I remembered the first time I had a drink. And um, we had a very big family and my mom had to use cloth diapers. And we had a ringer washer. Now, remember, this is back in the 70s. We had a ringer washer and we had to hang the diapers outside on the clothesline. And I got my fingers stuck in the ringer because I figured if I could just catch the end of the diaper that was going through that wrapped around that I could pull it out without having to shut everything down and and like start over. And when I my fingers got stuck I thought I was gonna die mm-hmm. and I guess I screamed pretty loud because then my mom came in and got me out of that situation and my dad was outside fixing the house and he came in and and he goes like are you okay and I said I think so I just got really scared and he poured me a shot of rye and said drink this you'll feel better and do you know what happened you felt I felt better, better. right so whether it was physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, anything, I was taught at nine years old that if I just had a drink, I would feel better. So I felt like now when I look back, it was almost like I was groomed to become an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And it's not fair. No, it's not. And did that continue though? Like, I mean, was it readily available to you? Was it offered to you frequently? All the time. It was readily available. And 
I remember one time, because my dad worked shift work, and my mom was a very bad alcoholic while she was pregnant for most of my young younger brothers. And my dad was getting ready to go to work, and he came up to me and he said, if your mom starts drinking tonight, I need you to dump the bottle of rye down the sink. And I thought, that's a huge thing for me to do. Like, my mom is going to hate me. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, he went to work and she started drinking. And I had to take the 40-ounce bottle of rye and dump it down the sink, put the lid back on and put it in the cupboard and then go to bed. And yeah, my mom was pissed. She came in my room and was in quite the rage. Why did I do that? First, did you do it? Yes. Why did you do it? Because he told me to. And um, she didn't get mad at him for it. She got mad at me for it. Right. But yeah, it was always like, can you fix me a drink? Can you, you know, at 9, 10, 11 years old, I would always be fixing them drinks. Mm -hmm. And you don't. I mean, yeah, why don't you have a little sip? They had a shot glass and the bottle of rye. You'd pour a shot, put it in, pour a shot, drink it. It's just what you did. It just seemed normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, everyone's normal is so different. Everybody's normal is so different. That's right. But if that's all you know. Exactly. That's just what you know. And like I said, it worked. Yeah. It worked. Now, this continued through your teen years? Yeah. Um, Actually, when I was 11, I remember because uh, we were at a Christmas party. And because I was 11 and I had experience taking care of younger children, we were at a, a the Christmas party, the company Christmas party. And then afterwards, we went to a house party. And... Um, I would take care of the kids and then they decided they were going to make pot cake. So somebody had to go to the store and get one of those snack cake mixes and, and make this cake. And then they kind of went around the room. Are you going to have a piece? And my mom said yes. And my stepdad said yes. And my older brother said yes. So I thought yes. And then when they started passing the cake around, I had a piece. I didn't know better. And nobody said not to. And my mom said, no, I can't. I'm driving. And my dad said, no, I can't. I'm driving. And my brother said, no, I can't because I might be driving. And I felt like a joke. It's okay. That's a lot. Yeah, I felt like the the family joke. Mm -hmm. Because it was funny. And it reminds me of this story that happened a little while ago about the the young boy that was on the skate park and his older boys gave him drugs because they thought it would be funny. That's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. I was a joke. And that's pretty much how I felt my entire childhood. Mm-hmm. But the drugs continued for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, I... I met a really nice man and he was gonna save me from my parents Minnie it's okay it's okay shh he was gonna save me from my parents and and I remember my mom calling me when we were living together and she'd say I want to talk to your your husband and I'm like why she goes because we're looking for some some marijuana and we know he can find it 
Like my parents would ask my husband for drugs. So you, so your parents, it sounds like had more of a relationship, even though it was a negative relationship, really, when you think of it being just so related around drugs, they had more of a talking relationship or a caring relationship with your husband than you. Yes. My husband actually, or the man that I married actually worked with my stepdad and he was a few years older than me, about seven years older than me. And, um, he adored my stepdad. He said my stepdad taught him so much at the job. But when I started to talk about the way he treated me and the things that he would do to me, he said he had to save me from that. And I moved out shortly after that. Mm-hmm. What age were you when you moved out of home? I was 18. 18. Yeah. My mom said I couldn't move out until I graduated. And in Alberta, their grad ceremony was in um, May. And um, May 25th. You're good with dates too, eh? 1985. Yeah. And uh, I moved out the weekend after. Yeah. I wasn't finished high school, but I couldn't stay. And I had all my stuff packed in like shoeboxes mm-hmm. and bags, garbage bags. You were ready to go. I really, really, really wanted to go. What were your next steps? I had no idea. You just needed out? I just needed to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember a time when... um. Like I said, my stepdad was a violent man. I can't even remember what the fight was about. Um, But we were nose to nose. And um, he backhanded me. And I think I maybe I tried to fight back. Because we ended up on the floor in the kitchen. And I I don't know, it reminds me of like, just, uh, I freaked out. And I just started kicking wildly to get him away from me. And I must have hit him in the balls or something because he backed away. And um, and I remember he still had his steel toe work boots on. And he was, I, I got hurt. And then I just froze. I just laid there and I didn't move. And he yelled at me and he told me to get up and fight like a man. And I thought that was so weird because I was like, I believe I was a 15-year-old girl and uh, I didn't know how to fight like a man. And something clicked in me, and I looked up at him, and I said, no, no. I said, I think you need to get this all out of your system. Whatever this is, you need to get it out of your system, because if you ever touch me again, I will kill you. And he walked away. And he never touched me again. Good. But it took me till then to stand up for myself or to lay down for myself is what I did because I just said I I can't do it anymore but I lived in constant fear of him I lived in constant fear and that's not that's not not okay it's not okay no no and to live in fear like that and to never feel good enough when I drank I felt better and then I would you know, at parties, like, oh, let's try some cocaine. And it was fine just trying it every once in a while. It was now not how, a big deal. So how old were you when cocaine was introduced to your life? I would have been about 18. About okay. 18. 18. So this is around the time that you were moving out. Yes. From my husband. And it was a party thing because in Alberta, you can get into bars when you're 18. It's the legal right, drinking right. age. Yep. So yeah, it was a party thing. Maybe once or twice a year. It's not a big deal. It was no big deal. Mm-hmm. And then my husband and I actually moved to Salt Spring Island. 
and with our daughter and um it just didn't work out I felt so alone and so trapped there that I ended up moving back to Alberta and um was just a single mom for quite a few years and one night in the bar, somebody told me that they had some drugs. And I said, well, hook me up with a little bit. And we went out to his truck, and he gave me this little tiny line. And I'm thinking, what is that? And because uh, I remember doing big lines of cocaine, right? And this was a tiny little line. And I did it, and I went back into the bar, and I thought, whoa, what was that? That mm-hmm. was like the best cocaine I'd ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. So I went up to the guy and I said, what was that? And can you get me some? He goes, it's not cocaine. It was speed, methamphetamine. And I was like, well, how much is it? And it was like 20 bucks. And I thought, here's some, here's 20 bucks. Like, hook me up. And he said, just don't do it all at once. And I didn't. I just kept those lines really small. And that's how it started, the harder stuff. Because I was single parent, I'd go out on the weekends, and I would get some some speed, and you could party all night long, and I would only do it Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday I'd come down and get up and go to work on Monday morning, and then I found out if I bought more, I could sell it and use it, the like use the profits myself, so I wouldn't have to pay for it. So I started dealing meth in my hometown. Can you go, just give me a time frame reference as to age now? We're kind I'm of on a timeline 25. Okay. 25, 27 okay. in there. And a friend came over one day and said, I have somebody that's looking to buy. And I said, is he cool? And she says, yeah. And uh, I said, well, then have him come over. And at this point in my life, I'm very creative. And I was building things in my living room. It's kind of weird because there was like sawdust all over the living room floor. And I used to joke with my friends about how I needed a workmate, you know, those Black and Decker workmates, but preferably some tall, young, blonde thing with big blue eyes. And it was just the joke. And when this guy came over that was looking to buy some drugs, he knocked on the door. And when I opened the door, he was six foot four. He had blonde hair down to his waist, and he had the most beautiful blue eyes I'd ever seen in my life. And I just looked at him, and I said, welcome home. And we never spent a day apart. What? For years after that. Okay. Yeah. He was the love of my life. (laughs) But we started doing drugs together. Okay. Yeah. And then had to leave town because things weren't good there. And at this point, I, about the time I met him, my daughter was about eight. And she said she wanted to go live with her dad for a year. And I said, well, when you're old enough, because I hadn't seen my dad since I was nine, and I wanted her to have a relationship with her dad. And she said, I'm ready. So I phoned up her dad, and, and we decided to let her go live with him for a year. So that was the summer. <clears throat> and... um That Christmas, she phoned me up Christmas morning and said, guess what I got for Christmas? And I'm like, what did you get? What did you get? She goes, I got a pony. 
and I knew that my life was never going to be the same. I'd always wanted a pony, and they just bought my daughter a pony for Christmas. She was never going to want to come back to me, and she never did. And I think that's when everything went downhill mm-hmm. because I had no reason to to live anymore. She was my reason to live, and I, I'd lost it. And I think I got harder into the drugs until I couldn't pay the dealer back. And that's why we left town. Okay. So you left town. And where did you head from there? We went to Winnipeg. Winnipeg, of all places. In October. (laughs) November, December. And it was so cold. Mm Mm-hmm. And my boyfriend couldn't even work because he was working construction and they would always shut down the crane because it was so windy. And I hated it. I hated it so much. And the only place we could find to live was like a crack house. Mm -hmm. And there were fire trucks and ambulances like all the time. And I remember one morning getting up and the ambulance was out front and they were the police were coming to interview people that lived in the building and they said, what happened? And there was a guy outside sniffing lacquer because that's all he could find. And after he was done that, he lit a smoke and lit himself on fire and burned like third degree burns over 75% of his body right outside my bedroom window. And I thought, I don't want to be here. This is not the life I want. So we packed up and went to Calgary because geographical fix is always a good thing to try. Yeah. Yeah. We couldn't find speed in Winnipeg either. They only had cocaine there. So we we couldn't find it in Calgary either. But they had a lot of crack in Calgary. Mm -hmm. And um, we started doing that. And I never really liked it, but that's what everybody was doing. So what else was I going to do? And I couldn't quit. Even if I didn't like it, I just could not quit. Did you, did you try? Did you, did you, the two of you together, did you kind of challenge one another or think about life outside of, of the addiction? I did. I don't know if he did, but at this point I hadn't seen my daughter in a couple years Yeah, and I hadn't had contact with her. And I remember in the apartment that we were in, in Calgary, the police came and knocked on the door once and I thought, oh God, what happened? And they said, we're looking for Claudine. And when I answered the door, he said, do you have a daughter named Chantel? And I'm like, yes. He goes, oh, well, your ex-husband has reported you missing. Yeah. Um... And I said, yes. And he said, your ex-husband has reported you missing because they couldn't find me. And I hadn't had any contact with them. I honestly didn't even know what to do then. My boyfriend got sent to Vancouver for a job with his employer. So he was gone for like a month. And I was home all by myself. And... um it was only like $100 for a Greyhound bus ticket to come out and see him from Calgary. And I came out to visit. And uh, 
I stayed for a couple of weeks. And then I remember the bus ride home because it was September 11th, 2001. And I remember hearing somebody's, the radio coming on about how there's been attacks and there's uh, airplanes missing and they've hit the Pentagon and the Twin Towers and all this stuff. And I thought, what is going on? And the bus driver had the radio turned on. And I thought it was just a joke. And I remember getting to the apartment and turning on the TV and seeing all that stuff that was going on on September 11th. And I thought it was like, I thought it was just a movie. And I remember changing the channel and every single channel had the same thing. And I thought it was going to be the end of the world. And I remember phoning up the boyfriend and said, I'm scared. I want to come back. I want to be together. If we're going to die, like the world's going to end. <laughs> Let's be together. And he said, I can't come right now. So the first thing I did was phone up a dealer and started using again. Really bad. Mm-hmm. Really bad. And your choice at this point was? That was crack. Okay. Yeah. And that was 2001. September by Christmas of 2001 I had said that this has to be it like we're too old to be doing this (laughs) I don't want to live like this and I don't want to die like this and we'd seen people die all around us and we're losing friends and that Christmas I said that would be the last Christmas I used and that New Year's was going to be the last day New Year's Day was going to be the last day that we used and um, it wasn't really, but uh, we cut back, we cut way back. And then um, I got pregnant, but I chose to just ignore it because if you ignore the problem, it'll just go away. And it was um, April 23rd, my 35th birthday. And I was high and we had no money and we had no toilet paper (laughs) and I just remember thinking I want my mom and I phoned my mom and I said I'm in trouble and I want to come home and she sent me a bus ticket and I went home and um, I just told him what was happening and that I just didn't want to be like that anymore and I that I thought I was pregnant and I went to my doctor the next day, made an appointment, and, and I said, I think I'm pregnant. And he looked at me and he goes, you think? Because at that point, I was already four months pregnant. So he sent me for an ultrasound, make sure that everything was okay. And um, I think I waited that long because then it was too late to do anything about it, right? Because you can't have an abortion after 20 weeks. Mm-hmm. And that's about where I was. Do you think that subconsciously or even consciously that you actually wanted this? You wanted a baby? 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Because I thought it would save my life. Right. And um, while I was with my parents for those two weeks, my boyfriend said that he, he cleaned up the place. There was nothing else there. He told everybody to stop coming, that we were going to have a baby, and that we were changing our lives. I remember having my dad made spaghetti. My stepdad made spaghetti and gave me a glass of wine with the spaghetti. 
And you they, just had this discussion that you are pregnant with him and yeah. that you want to change your life. Yeah, then. but the, a glass of wine won't do anything. Mm-hmm. Like my mom drank the whole time she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Actually, my dad, I remember taking him, taking my mom beer because the doctor said it would help her milk come in. Yeah. They they were making wine. And they had, uh, I don't know, like 12, those big carboys, big glass jars Mm -hmm. full of wine that they were making so of course I had to try them not thinking that it was going to affect anything and then I went back to Calgary to be with my boyfriend and to continue on with my pregnancy and I got a really good doctor and and um I said I had quit that I didn't need help that everything was going to be fine and then um one day, my boyfriend came home from work with just a little bit. And I said, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. A week later, he came home with a little bit more. And I said, I'll just do one. And any addict knows one is not enough. It's that one that starts a spiral that you just can't get out of. And I went back to my doctors and I said, I've cut back. I think I'll be okay. And because I was honest with my doctors, my doctors were honest with me. And they told me that when I had the baby, that it would be tested. If there was anything, any trace, that they would take the baby away. I said, okay, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And I figured I was due October 15th. So on September 15th, I quit. I figured I had a whole month for it to come out of my system and I could get everything prepared and everything ready and I would have a beautiful baby and everything would be fine. And may I stop you there for one moment? I want to ask about the frequency of your usage during your pregnancy, kind of because you got pregnant in January, mm-hmm. kind of like really had the realization in April, like, oh, my gosh, and started telling people in April. Yeah. Were you using throughout the entire pregnancy? Yeah. And were you drinking throughout the entire pregnancy? Um, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I remember having a few drinks here and there, but I wasn't, that wasn't my issue. That wasn't my main thing. Crack was my main thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, on September 15th, I, I stopped and I had a doctor's appointment on September um, 19th. And when I was at the doctor, she checked everything out and she said, oh, you're having a contraction. And I'm like, yeah, I've been having those. And she said, I said, are they real or are they Braxton Hicks? She goes, well, more than like three an hour and they're probably real. And I remember having a meltdown thinking, no, I'm not ready. Like I just quit using. It's only been like four days. I, this isn't okay. And she said, baby's going to come when baby wants to come. And you could be in labor for days. This could stop. And it could, you know, don't worry. Don't stress. And on the way back to the apartment from the doctor's office, I stopped at my boyfriend's job site. And, of course, they paged him, like, the baby's coming, the baby's coming. And we, um, we stopped and got a few things at the grocery store and then went home and, and uh I told him to shower because he was really smelly and I was like, everything's going to be fine. And I actually remember because it was like, maybe it was a Thursday. So they gave him his check and um, there were quite a few knocks at the door when he was in the shower because everybody knew when his payday was. So the dealers were coming to collect 
what was fronted last week and to sell us some more. And I said, nope, we're going to the hospital. And we got to the hospital and, and I was scared. I was so scared. Like having a baby is a pretty scary thing. Even if you've been through it before, it's, it's scary. And, uh, they sent him downstairs to fill in some paperwork and they hooked me up to the baby monitor and, and he came back and he ate my snack and everything was going great. And I thought, this is going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And then he told me he was going to go out for a smoke. And then he just never came back. And I told the nurse, I said, can't you, can you like page him? She says, no, it's time to go to the birthing room. And I'm like, but, but he's lost. He doesn't know where I am. She said, honey, he's left. He had a pocket full of money and he was on a mission. And nothing was going to keep him there to watch his baby be born. And I remember thinking, I cannot do this alone. I was so scared. And I had a bro- two brothers that lived in Calgary, so I phoned them up. And I said, are you guys busy? Like, you want to maybe watch your sister have a baby today? Because <laughs> I'm scared. Mm-hmm. And um, when my brother came into the hospital room and he sent my youngest brother out and he came over and he sat on the bed and I said I have to tell you something and he goes you can tell me anything and I said um there's a possibility that they might take the baby because I've been doing drugs and it was the first time I had admitted it to anybody in my family I'd hit it I thought so well and um my brother just looked at me and he said okay it's okay We'll deal with it if it happens. And he held my hand while I gave birth to his niece. And um, and I remember my first daughter, when she was born, when they handed her to me, she looked me right in the eyes. And I was like, oh, my God, this is what love feels like. And when this baby was born, when they finally handed her to me, she was still really blue and she was so, so tiny. And I just remember thinking, I hope she's okay. Cause I knew they were going to test her. And, um, they had to take her to the NICU cause she was really small and make sure that she was okay. And they sent me back to my room and while I'm in my room, the phone rang and it was the boyfriend asking how I was. And I was like, you have no right to know. And I hung up on him. I was so mad and so hurt that he had abandoned me. I, I just, I couldn't believe it. And then uh, the nurse told, I would go down to the NICU and the nurse told me that she, my daughter was doing really well and that I might be able to keep her in my room that night. And then my brother told me that he had phoned my parents and they were coming. And, uh, I introduced the, my parents to the, my baby and uh, it was later in the day and I remember sitting in the rocking chair holding her and I wasn't allowed to breastfeed because of drug use. That was already told to me and I said, that's fine. We'll do what we need to do. And while I was sitting in the rocking chair holding my daughter, the nurse came in with a piece of paper, about half the size of a standard legal sheet of paper and in red felt marker It was a circle about the size of a toonie with a plus in it. And then beside it, it said cocaine. And she stuck it right in my face. And then she took my daughter out of my arms and said, 
you can't have her. And it was at that point, I remember looking over at my mom and I just said, I can't do this. I can't. There's nothing that will take away that pain. And I was going to, I went into the hallway and I went to the elevator and all I could think about was getting to the roof so that I could jump because I couldn't see a way out. And I remember standing there pushing the button and the, and it wouldn't come and it, it wouldn't come. And I remember thinking, God help me. And I collapsed on the floor. And about that point is where my stepdad and some security men came and took me to my room. And, um, and I just realized that my life had to change. I couldn't even die. But I wanted to live. And I wanted my daughter to know that I loved her. So then the social workers showed up. And they're like, what do you want to do? And I said, just give me my baby. Everything will be fine. They said, well, you can't go home. And I said, well, then can I go to my parents' house? And they said, well, not really, because your parents have um, history with the ministry for being abusive. So that's not a safe place for you to go. And I said, well, then what can I do? And they said, if you want to ever get your daughter back, you need to go get treatment. I said, then take me there because I'm willing to do anything to prove you wrong. But of course, you can't just walk into a treatment facility. You have to get on a waiting list. They tried and they couldn't, but they said, we're going to send you to detox. And I thought, that's fine. That's a safe place to go. Nobody's using in there. I'll be safe. And um, I went to detox for five days. But I couldn't see my daughter in those five days. And then I said, well, can't I go to my brother's house and they can bring her there? I just want to see her. Like, I want to bond with this, my child. And um, it just wasn't working out. So when I got out of the detox, I went to my brother's house to stay for a couple days. And I arranged to get a visit with my daughter. And I called her dad and said, we have this visitation lined up if you want to come see her. And we spent a couple hours there. And she was so, it's just so amazing. Like, she just, she's just like a miracle in my eyes. She was alive. She was breathing. She was healthy. As far as I knew. And when we walked out of there, I remember telling my boyfriend, like, that's the best high I've ever had is holding our baby. How do you feel? And he goes, oh, my God, that was the most amazing thing. I said, can you please hang on to that the next time you want to use? Think of that and make it all about her. Get clean for her. And he couldn't. And we walked. I was walking him back to his place and to get on the bus to go back to my brother's. And I got the call that I was accepted to go into the treatment center the next day. And um, that's where I went. And it's a 28-day treatment program. And we walked from the house over to the little school area or office building where we went through the first three steps of recovery. 
and uh, I made arrangements for them to bring my daughter there to the recovery house or to the treatment center so that I could see her, supervised visits. And remember, we're in Calgary, and there's not always the best weather in Calgary. And this is September, October, November. And there were times when they said, we can't bring her because the roads aren't good. And I was like, you better just bring her. But after the 28-day program, I applied to stay for long-term, which was another three months, and was accepted right away. So I got to stay there. And I remember the first Christmas, all I wanted was my girls, both my girls. And I couldn't have it. But... They took, they took, when they took my daughter, they said they were going to keep her for six months and I had to do all these things to get her back. And I kept doing the things. And I remember going into the social worker's office and I said, what else do you want me to do? Like I've done everything. And she goes, oh, well, now you need to do this. And, and I do that. And then they'd come up with something else. And I remember I called a meeting. I got my brother, I got the foster parents, I got the social workers, I got my counselor from the treatment center, and I got them all in a boardroom. And I said, listen, you took my child away from me because you said I was a horrible parent and I would never get her back unless I did certain things. And every time you tell me to do something, I'm doing it. But every time I do it, you come up with something else. And the social worker looked at me and she said, we've never had a mother do what you have done. We don't know. We've never had, we've never given back a child to their mother in this situation. So we don't know what to do. And I said, well, then you better figure it out and write it on a piece of paper because I'm going to keep doing shit until I get her back because I am getting her back. I'm not using, I've gone to treatment, I've detox, I'm going to see a counselor, I'm doing the with the parenting classes and I'm doing everything that you've asked me to do. I just want her back. And I did not like the foster parents. I heard that the mother was off working and the father was home taking care of her. And I was so upset about that and I hated them. And then I had a conversation with her, the mother, foster mother. And she said, Claudine, we're not taking her away from you. We're just taking care of her till we can give her back. And I have every confidence that we are going to give her back to you. She's been doing this a long time. She's fostered lots of kids. She's adopted some of those kids. And she was one of the first people that believed in me. And I love her to this day. Mm-hmm. I've gone back to Calgary on visits and they've allowed me to stay with them. Like I used to call them like once a month. I haven't talked to them in a long time and I should really do that. But they they were the one of the first people that believed in me and gave me confidence that I could do it. What a, That's a beautiful thing. It is. Yeah. Very rare. Like you would never... No. Maybe because not a lot of foster situations are that great. But they are wonderful people, and I thank God for them every day mm-hmm. because they did, they took care of her when I couldn't, until I could. And then even after I got her back, they still would come and take her for a night to give me a night break 
for just because they loved her and they loved me and they wanted to do everything they could to help support us. So I would take that one day, one night, and I'd go to my AA meeting. I'd go to my aftercare group. I'd do all the things I needed to do in that day. And then I'd spend the rest of the week with her. And it was amazing. It was amazing. Her dad, on the other hand, couldn't, still couldn't. Well, I was in the treatment center on the 28 days. Um, he told me that his mother was coming. And I was really scared. She was coming to meet the baby. And I'm like, well, how is that going to happen? I can't even get to see the baby. Mm-hmm. They showed up at the treatment center and knocked on the door. And the, the counselor came in. To, I was on the phone with my brother. And they came in and said, there's somebody here to see you. And I said, tell them to come back. Give me 10 minutes. And I went out back and I prayed. I said, God, just give me the right words to say to these people so that they'll understand what happened and what's going to happen and where we go from here. And when they came back, it was my boyfriend, his brother, and his mother. And we sat in the room and I said, this is what happened. He had told them all kinds of horrible things about me and that I kidnapped the baby and I wouldn't let him see her and all these things. And he made me out to be a really horrible person. And I told them the truth. I've been doing drugs with your son for a long time. And I tried to quit and I couldn't. And now I'm in here and I'm going to get clean and I'm going to get her back. And I'll do everything I can for you to someday meet her and be part of her life. So that was the second person that really believed in me. And I thank God for her every day too. Mm-hmm. And I still think when things get rough, and it's been a few years, but there's still times that things get really rough. I just don't ever want to see that look of disappointment on that woman's face. Mm-hmm. Christmas 2014. Um. I've spent every Christmas with with those people since my daughter was born. And uh, their son hasn't. He was off doing whatever he needed to do. He would get some clean time. He would go to a recovery house. He'd get a few months here and there. But he hasn't spent any Christmases with them. And every Christmas I'm there. And New Year's. And it was... January 4th, 2015, and we're all sitting around. Dad's doing his crossword puzzle, and Mom's knitting or doing a a jigsaw puzzle, and the kids are out playing outside, and I'm sitting reading a book, and the phone rings, and Mom gets up and answers the phone, and I knew it wasn't good. And when she hung up the phone, she said, It's Ken. He's on life support. And... She ran upstairs and I tried to give her a hug and she was so rigid. And I said, he's been through worse because he had made some attempts at taking his life and was unsuccessful. I said, he's been through worse and he'll get through this. She goes, it's different this time. And then dad told me, he said, you need to pack the kids up and go home. We got to get up to Prince George. And uh, I brought the kids home and they went up to Prince George and 
they pulled the plug on January 6th. There was no brain activity. He had gone to a, he had, I believe at that point he had like six months clean and he went to a New Year's Eve party and, and, um, didn't wake up. And I remember not telling the kids what was going on until we got home and I had my daughter sitting on the couch and I just said, a friend of grandma and grandpa's had an accident and they got to go see him. And then when we got home, I, I said to my daughter, I said, there, the friend is actually your dad. He was at a party and he overdosed and he's in the hospital now. And they don't know if he's going to make it. And my daughter actually just shrugged her shoulders like it was nothing. And I thought that it seems so weird. And I said, I thought you might get emotional about that. And she said, why? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed, Mom. You have always been there for me since day one. He has not. The last time I saw him, he borrowed $60 from me and we built a sandcastle on the beach. That was the last time I saw him. And then he just disappeared. He never even paid me back the $60. That's what she remembers about her dad. So now he's gone. And she was 12. Mm -hmm. And for a kid to go through that, it's too much. But she would used to she used to crawl into bed with me around midnight and say, "Mom, can you just tell me funny stories about my dad?" Yeah, and I would, and we still do that. Like at Christmas time when we're all together, we tell funny stories about him because he was an amazing man. Yeah. And like I said, he was the love of my life, and I miss him every day. But I stay sober because of him. Let's celebrate your sobriety. I really want to dive into that even too, because your sobriety, you're 17 years now? 17 years, yeah. And it's not always easy. No. 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 I've been through a lot. Mm-hmm. Even after he died, I figured if I just had, if I could just get through one year, mm-hmm. that everything would be okay, because it's every birthday, every anniversary, yes. every season. And it, actually, it was a year to the day, I kind of had a nervous breakdown. I called up his mom and I said, it's all your fault because we just went through Christmas and nobody talked about him and I need to talk about him. And I just want to, I feel cheated. It's not fair that he got to go out and use and I can't and I'm in so much pain that there's nothing I can do to take that pain away. And you know what she said to me? Go to a meeting. And I said, I hate you Mm -hmm. (laughs) because that's what I needed to hear. And after that day, I started going to meetings a lot more regular and sharing what I've been through. And since then, too, we've lost so many people because of this epidemic that's going around right now. Like, people are dying all around us. And there's, what do we do about it? What can I do about it? Mm -hmm. Except say, I got through it. There wasn't fentanyl back 17 years ago. There was, but it wasn't in everything. And it wasn't killing people the way it is today. What can I do about it? Yeah. I share my story and I hope somebody gets something out of it. Yeah. And that they can go to a meeting or ask for help and find one person that will believe in them. Mm -hmm. I believe in you. Yeah. You can do it.
With so many stigmas that come with the word drug addict (laughs) or addict, what helps you maintain your strength owning your truth? I, my name is Claudine and I'm an addict. I did what I had to do when I had to do it. I'm not a bad person. I made some really bad choices Mm -hmm. and it's going to affect myself and my daughter forever, but I'm not a bad person. I was given alcohol at age nine because it made me feel different and I've never been okay. Mm -hmm. I, I suffer from depression and anxiety and all those things and I want to feel different. There's not like, there's no medication. I think that's what happens. That's why people become addicts. They want to feel different than they feel. And the only way to do that is by doing a drug or drinking. But you, I find a way to feel different. Mm-hmm. I, I look at my daughter and I think about that day at the elevator. And when they took her out of my arms and that pain and how I never want to feel that pain again. And I know for me, if I have a drink or a drug, all of that pain will come back. Mm-hmm. And I've spent 17 years trying to get rid of it. Yeah. I have two more questions for you. Okay. You ready? I'm so ready. Okay. Claudine, what are you most proud of? I'm most proud of my daughter. Yeah. She's different. And that's because of what I did when I was pregnant. And she knows what happened. I'm very honest and open with her. And we talk about it all the time. And I, all I ever wanted was her forgiveness. And I needed to forgive myself first. But she forgives me too. Because for me, when you say sorry, that means you're not going to do that again. And when I told her I was sorry for what I did, I can never do that again. So I'm most proud of her because she forgives me, she accepts me, and she still loves me. And that's all I ever wanted. And you're an amazing mother. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes I'm not sure about that. (laughs) Because she still tells me she hates me sometimes. She's also 17. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she's 17. And you know what? She's not doing drugs. She's not out on the street. Mm -hmm. She hasn't ran away from home very often or very far. She always comes back. And to me, that's a huge accomplishment. Oh, gigantic. Being a single parent with her dad died and she's still an amazing person. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I remember thinking, like, my mother, my birth mother and I don't have the best relationship. And there are things that she did that I hate. And I never wanted my girls to grow up and hate me for things that I did. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm succeeding. I believe you're succeeding. I hope so. You know what I'm also very excited about is that your daughter has agreed to be a guest on this podcast. She has. I know. And we're a bit tight for time at this time of year right now. But when I'm back in BC, game on, I'm hunting the pair of you down because I cannot wait. She is so articulate and she is so 
well-spoken when it comes to sharing her challenges and her side of the story and just uh, allowing people to see inside her world. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I cannot wait for her story to be out in the world. So definitely stay tuned listeners because that's going to be a big one. Mm -hmm. Okay, last one. Okay, ready? I, I think so. What do you want to be known for? That's such a hard question. Mm-hmm. It really is. Because I remember most of my life thinking, who are you? And I was always so-and-so's sister, so-and-so's girlfriend, so-and-so's daughter. I was never a person. Like, I never felt seen. And now, I, this is me. This is my life. And I've come from I feel like I've come from nothing to this and I'm a good mom and I sometimes have to remind myself of that when she's telling me that she hates me I'm a good mom I'm a good friend I'm good at what I do for a living and um, I'm I'm no longer in pain pain comes and goes now but I'm not in constant pain or constant fear and that's huge. I don't even know how to thank you for this. (laughs) Honestly, I appreciate you so, so much. I hope this helps somebody. It will. Even just a tiny little bit. One person somewhere hears something that I've said and just knows that I believe in them. It'll be more than that. It will be perspective. Mm -hmm. It will be shifting opinions. It'll be education. Honestly, I thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so glad you came into my life. <laughs> I'm so glad you came into mine. It's amazing how things work Isn't out. Isn't it? There are no mistakes. No. I know. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, it really does. Yep. I 100% agree with that. Mm-hmm. And Anytime. Thank, <laughs> and thank you to my listeners. They are so great. I appreciate every single one of you as well. Please make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review these episodes. And if you are in fact interested in supporting the podcast in more ways than just listening, if you go to the safehavenpodcast.podbean.com and look at the top right, there's a little green button there that says become a patron. This is where you can donate as little or as much as you like. There is absolutely no obligation to do this. It's just another way that you can make sure that this podcast continues, that my equipment is covered, and that these incredibly powerful stories keep reaching your ears. Tell your friends that's really effective. Remember that you can find the Safe Haven podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. You can also follow along on Instagram at the Safe Haven podcast for the latest updates. I'll talk to you next week.